Good morning. I'm going to be reading out of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Well, if we were to have a one-round church history trivia, all or nothing, double or nothing, all in, 10,000 winner-takes-all question, with the following question, I think most of us in the room would probably walk out of here as winners. And here's the question. Name the most famous preacher of the 19th century who's known today with this title, the Prince of Preachers. Anybody? It is Spurgeon, yes. Okay, so I had great expectations that were just dashed, but that's okay. It is Charles Spurgeon, yes. Uh, you know, Spurgeon, by the time he was 22, was preaching to crowds of 10,000. I was not preaching to 10,000 at 22. Still haven't made it there. But Spurgeon was known as this fantastic preacher, incredible communicator. Uh, his knowledge of the scriptures, his ability to uh, proclaim with boldness. I mean, think about preaching to a crowd of 10,000. This is pre-speakers and microphones. Um, his sermons have been collected and published more than 300 million copies since his death. Uh, at times, he was preaching 10 sermons a week. Not, ten, not the same sermon 10 times, but 10 different sermons each week. Just an incredible ability to, really at the drop of a hat, just get up and preach. It, it was like sermons came out of him. And people would gather around to listen to him. And I think we could probably say pretty confidently that he has influenced every generation of preachers since then. Because he's had such an incredible uh, presence and a ministry and a legacy. And if you look at the history of the church, you can find that in every generation across the centuries, there are these charismatic and gifted preachers that just sort of pop up here and there. Uh, people who... Uh, tend to draw large crowds around them, either because they're able to give just incredibly detailed messages or the depth uh, of their knowledge, or maybe it's because of the delivery of their message, just something about them. They have this charisma, this ability that people just want to listen all day long. Uh, these people pop up here and there throughout history. And it seems that the case in Corinth is exactly that. Uh, if you remember in our series so far from Pastor West's sermon last week, the Corinthian church is divided. It may have started united at some point, but it is divided at this point. Now, we'll get into the source of division when we get into chapters 3 and 4 and 5 and on like that. Uh, but in the opening chapter here of 1 Corinthians, we know that the church is divided about doctrine. And what has happened is they're starting to split into groups, united around certain persons. Uh, people who are charismatic and gifted leaders. People like Peter or Apollos, even Paul. Or the people who think they're really good and they say, oh, I'm just with Jesus. You guys, you follow Peter and Paul, but I'm with Jesus. 
uh, people are uniting around these strong voices, these gifted preachers, the, you know, the Spurgeons of the day, people who could stand up and pound the pulpit, and people wanted to listen to them, men like Peter and Paul. And in response to news of what I would call sort of the personality cults that are going on in, in Corinth, uh, Paul writes this letter, and in our passage this morning, he describes his ministry of proclamation. Because he's heard people are starting to stand up and say, hey, I'm with Paul. And for Paul, he's thinking, oh, no, well, hold on a minute. I never preached Paul. I came and told you about Jesus, and now you're saying you're with me. And so in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, what Paul does is he begins to remind them of his ministry there. He says, hey, Corinth, let me just remind you what I did when I came there. Let me remind you of my message. He's reminding them of his ministry of proclamation, his work to teach and preach the good news of Jesus. And unlike the common, very eloquent, gifted speakers so often praised in Corinthian culture, Paul reminds the church that he took a different strategy when he came there, one characterized by an unpopular message and an unpopular method. Paul says, I came to you doing something countercultural. Gospel proclamation is not like political speech. It's not like poetry. It's not like acting. It's not like uh, debate, anything like that. It doesn't depend upon the eloquence of the speaker to stir up people's frenzies and just to get them really excited about the gospel. Uh, it doesn't rely on uh, a booming voice and how many times can I bang on the pulpit. Some of you probably grew up with some of that. People who, when things got a little too quiet, you heard one of these going on. It doesn't rely upon that. True gospel proclamation are, is different. It relies not on the so-called wisdom of the world that we've been talking about, the methods of the world that people think work, uh, and it relies not on eloquent preachers. Rather, and what I want us to see in the scriptures this morning, true gospel proclamation demonstrates the power of God in its message and in its methods. The power of God, not the wisdom of man. So let me pray for us and ask the Lord if he would bless our time in the word. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful for the opportunity to take time out of this morning to open up your word and ask you to feed us, to give us truth, to plant it in our hearts and in our minds that we would know it. Uh, and we ask, Father, for the grace not to know and understand only, but to obey and apply. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you've preserved it for our instruction. And we ask that as we approach it with humility, you would be good to teach us and shape us and bless us in this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want us to see, first of all, this morning in our text, that true gospel proclamation demonstrates the power of God in its message. Look again at verse 5. This is what Paul begins with here. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul summarizing his message, and he says, hey, Corinth, remember, when I came there, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In Paul's day, the, this was pre-movie theaters, pre-TVs, all those things. The common um, item of entertainment, what people wanted to do was you go to the public square, you go to the big open spaces, and you would listen to traveling speakers, debaters, philosophers, anybody with some new um, idea that they wanted to share, and you would listen to them, and they would get up there, and they would speak with eloquence, and they would be very uh, charismatic, gifted speakers, and people would come around them and just gather in crowds. That was a thing you wanted to do. Uh, crowds would gather to hear captivating arguments, eloquent speech, a wonderful debate from these highly intellectual men. 
Now, Paul knew this. This is the culture he's in. Uh, but if he decided to take a lesson from the public speakers of his day, I think he missed something here. I think he missed the mark. Because what Paul shows up in Corinth preaching is not a popular message. And it wasn't something easily understood. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. That one singular point, that is what my ministry of proclamation is going to be about. The core of Paul's message was the person and work of Jesus on the cross. What he preached was Jesus' atoning death to purchase salvation for his people. And in fact, if you want to look over, you can write this down. Later in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to remind them again. He says, beginning in verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. In case you have forgotten, let me remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. He says this, verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul says, look, guys, my entire ministry, all the teaching that I did, all the preaching that I did was around Jesus Christ crucified. Over in Colossians chapter 1, Paul will describe his ministry in Colossae in the same way. In verse 28, this is how he sums it up. He says, him we proclaim, him being Jesus, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Hey, Paul, tell us what you've been preaching lately. We proclaim him. We preach Jesus Christ crucified. That's the core, the foundation, the sum of all of his preaching ministry. Now, the question is, why limit his message to that? Of all the things that Paul could have come into town preaching, of all the things that were sure to draw a crowd, why limit his preaching ministry to Jesus Christ crucified? Here's the answer. Because that's the heart of the gospel. Because that is the core teaching that Corinthians needed to hear in order to be saved uh, and to follow Christ. It's a message only received by the power of God. It's not a message that you come in and you lay it out and people say, I'm on it. Sign me up. No, it's a message that is difficult to understand. And it's a message that requires a divine enabling. Uh, Pastor West dealt with this last week, talking about the, the foolishness of this message. Paul describes it as a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks back in verse 23. That's what really captures everybody. The Greeks, it's just foolish. This notion of a, of a Jesus on a cross, that somehow you can live through that, craziness. And to the Jews as well, it's a stumbling block. That's not the Savior we expected. It's not the one that fits our requirements. It's not the one that we want. This gospel message of Jesus Christ crucified, it doesn't make sense according to worldly wisdom. And more than that, not only does it not make sense, it's also very offensive. You ever try to share the gospel with someone and the response you get is not sort of indifference or, oh, hey, thanks for sharing, but it's that knee-jerk response of, I'm offended. I'm offended that you would tell me I'm a sinner. I'm offended that you would think that I actually need to follow Jesus. Anyone ever experienced that? You, know, you, you share your heart. You want to just, you're trying to be kind. You're trying to be winsome. And the response is just, how dare you tell me these things? The gospel is offensive. This message of Jesus Christ on the cross and the reason he went to the cross and why we need him there, it confronts us in our preconceived notions about our own self-righteousness, about our own ability to take care of things and our own ability to make sure that, sure, I'll, I'll get to heaven or whatever one day. Because the gospel message, it comes to people who, whose general view of life is, I'm okay, I've got this, 
and I don't need any help. And the gospel comes in and says, no, you're not okay. You don't got this, and you absolutely need help from this Jesus that we preach. And that message is offensive. It strikes right at the core of everything that we believe as people who are lost. All of our confidence and our abilities to save ourselves gets offended by this message of, no, actually, you need this suffering servant on a cross. You need this one who died for you. It's highly offensive. It was in the first century, and it certainly is still today in the 21st century. But Paul describes it in verse 18 of chapter 1. He says, to those of us who are being saved, this offensive message, he describes it as the power of God. He says, to those who are being saved, the gospel is the power of God. We see the offense of the gospel. Those of us who have trusted and believed, we see the offense, we take the offense, but then rather than turning away in sort of prideful arrogance of like, I don't need that, we actually turn to Jesus and we say, that's absolutely correct. As much as I don't want it to be correct, that absolutely describes me. That I am lost, that I need uh, salvation, and that I can find it in no one else other than Jesus. Those of us who are being saved, we hear this offensive message, and we believe and we look to Jesus. We receive the gospel as good news of our salvation. The, 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 the power of God to save us from our sins through the death of the Lord Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God. And I want to ask for a moment this morning, just as a sort of a heart check, how have you responded to the gospel? How, how, when people start talking about Jesus, they're talking about sin or the need for salvation, maybe right now, what is your response? Are you in the camp that looks at that and hears that and says, hold on a minute, you don't know me. You don't know how hard I work. You don't know how much good I've done. I don't need that kind of thing. Is that you or are you the other side that says, boy, that hurts, but that's exactly right. And I need that Jesus that you're talking about. How is it that you have responded? If you're here this morning or you're watching online and you're in the first camp of the people that just says, I don't need that, I don't want that, I want to challenge you to think about and consider the truth of the gospel and examine your own heart and ask the question, am I really okay? Even on my best days, am I 100% perfect? Of course not. And can I do it on my own? No, I need Jesus. And if you're in the second camp, then I praise God for that, that you have seen the offense of the gospel. You've realized that that's absolutely true. And my next challenge would be hopefully turn to Jesus. Because the gospel, when we, when we receive this message and it shows us our sin, the other side is that it ought to point us to Jesus. Okay? The point of telling people that they're lost is not to just depress them and leave them there. It's to say, but there is one who has made a way. Look to Jesus. When Paul rides into town into Corinth, thinking about his preaching ministry. If he wanted to preach a message that was sure to gather a large following, you know, just pack the pews, nice big church following, he would not have picked Jesus Christ crucified. Now, this is probably the last topic that he would have picked because it is not easily understood, it's not naturally understood, and it is highly offensive to everybody. He would have preached something easily understood and not at all offensive. He would, have, he would have stuck right to the middle, easy believism, love and, you know, unicorns and roses and all is well, a sort of message that people want to hear and they would follow. He wouldn't have preached Christ crucified. But in doing so, here, get this, what he does is he ensures that any acceptance of his message is not an indication of its popularity, but of the power of God at work. 
See, if Paul rides into town with this message that everyone wants to hear, then suddenly it's like, oh, man, look, the message is so wonderful. I'm such a great preacher. People are following. But by choosing a topic that is so offensive at our core and that absolutely requires the Spirit of God to help us understand, what he does is he ensures that any response of faith and belief has to be credited to the power of God at work. Paul writes later, we'll see this in chapter 2, he says in verse 14, he says, the natural person, this is the unsaved person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Okay? So lost people are not only unwilling to listen, they are unable to hear and believe. When lost people hear the gospel and believe, and they finally have that repentance and faith, they don't do it because they finally figured it out. Oh, it just clicked for me. I got it. I got the gospel. It makes sense. No. They do it because the Spirit of God gave them ears to hear, and eyes to see, and a heart to believe. That's likely the testimony for many of us in the room. Maybe you remember that moment where prior to that day, the gospel, a bunch of nonsense. Couldn't make sense out of any of it. And then suddenly it clicked. Why? Because you figured it out? No. Because suddenly your eyes were opened. Suddenly your heart, it's like the scales falling off and you can believe and you look to Christ. That is evidence of the Spirit of God at work. By preaching the foolishness of Jesus Christ crucified, a message that the Corinthians could only receive through the work of the Spirit, Paul ensures that their faith, look at verse 5, chapter 2, he ensures that their faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So my faith is not in the captivatingness of the argument. Paul doesn't ride into town and say, guys, I've got something that makes perfect sense. It is so clear that you can't do anything but believe. No, no, no. By preaching the ministry or the, the proclamation, this message of Jesus Christ crucified, he ensures that their faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. His ministry of proclamation demonstrates not the eloquence of his argument, but the power of God necessary for deaf ears to hear and for blind, ear, blind eyes to see. It's not the power of an argument. It's the power of God at work. That's the message of gospel proclamation. It's not showing up with the message that everybody wants to hear. It's preaching the truth of Jesus and trusting and watching God do the work of opening the eyes, of opening the ears. And I want to give us a point of application here as we think about this. I want to take this from the Paul's ministry and think about our own. Let me give you a broad application point here, and then I'll make some specific comments. Here's what we do with this truth. Uh, the truth of how he um, proclaimed the gospel. Here it is. Do not soften the message of the gospel to make it more palatable for unbelievers. That's our takeaway. Do not soften the message of the gospel to make it more palatable for unbelievers. As I said earlier, the message of the cross is offensive just by its own nature. I mean, it strikes right at everything that we believe about ourselves. If we change, catch this, there are times where we think, well, maybe I can just avoid some things. Maybe I can just sort of sand off the edges, avoid the prickly things, and just stick to kind of right down the middle. I don't want to talk too much about sin. That's too hard. I don't want to talk about hell, judgment. Let me just sort of get rid of those, soften those things, and just stick to a message of, of just Jesus loves me. I, I, in my mind, I have this picture of like the 1970s pictures, Bible study material of Jesus where he's got the long flowing robe 
He's got long, curly blonde hair, blue eyes, and he's holding a little baby sheep. You know those pictures? And you're like, it's just like gentle, you know, Jesus, meek and mild. Well, what happens is when you soften the gospel and you take away all the bits that seem offensive, the, the idea is that, well, if I soften it, I'll make it more receivable, make it more palatable. Here's the problem, though. When you soften the gospel, you actually lose the gospel. If we soften and try to get rid of all the bits that we don't like because they're offensive about sin, about the need for repentance and faith, uh, about being born again, about trusting in Christ, if we try to get rid of all those in order to make the message more palatable, what we've actually done is we've lost the message itself. And we get people to follow this sort of kumbaya Jesus that just floats around and sings all day. But that is not what we actually need to be saved. We need the truth, the hard truth of our lostness and our need for Jesus. And what that looks like as we think about daily life. Let me give you a couple layers of examples here. Uh, What does that look like in the pulpit ministry? Well, that means at least when I'm in the pulpit, we are preaching the truth of the gospel, the nitty gritty details of sin and our need for repentance. We're not going to soften the gospel. You know, if we wanted to pack the, the chairs in here, we could easily do it. Easily do it. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about hell. Stick to just some nice platitudes every week. We could pack the chairs telling people how to live their best life now. It's easy. It's not rocket science. But we will have lost the gospel. And we would have had people, we would have all those people sitting in our chairs believing in a gospel that's not true and biblical, lost in their sins still because they've not heard the reality of what they need and the reality of their condition. So in the pulpit, we're going to preach the truth. What does that look like in the Sunday school rooms, in our uh, equipping classes? Same thing. We're not going to avoid those issues that rub up against us because they're straight from the scriptures and we have to know them. Uh, what's it look like in your discipleship setting? You know, we've been pushing having these one-on-one discipleship groups. Well, it looks like this. When you're, you're in a discipleship relationship, uh, that person has wandered into error. They're walking in sin. And you think, well, I know I need to call them back. I know I need to remind them of the truth of God's word and the need for repentance, but it would just be a lot easier if I just don't say anything. I don't want the conflict. I don't want the confrontation. Let me just hope that the Lord brings them around on their own. No. Not softening the gospel means that we're actually going to go to that person in that relationship and say, hey, you claim to follow Jesus, which means you say that you subscribe to the truth of the holiness of God, the commands in his scripture, and the need for us to obey them. And I see this going on in your life. Come back to Christ. Repent of what you're doing and follow Jesus. Is it going to be hard and difficult? Absolutely. Is there a potential for just an explosion? Absolutely. But we don't shy away from these truths. We don't soften the gospel just to get along. What does that look like in evangelism? Maybe you've had this encounter. You've had this situation where uh, a window opens, I've got a chance to share the gospel, I've been waiting for this moment, and then suddenly there's a thought in the back of your head that says, oh no, how, uh, how are they going to respond? I'm really worried if they're, I'm expecting the worst. What if they don't want to hear this? What if they freak out on me because I'm, you know, I'd, maybe, I'll just, maybe I'll just tell them you know, something simple and something nice. We have these, these temptations to try to soften the message, and sometimes that means we don't even share the gospel at all. Maybe we we reduce it down and we say, you know what? They're just not going to hear this at all. I'm not going to say anything. We as a church need to be about evangelism. We need to be about telling people the truth. In love, yes, and in boldness, but telling people the truth. And you see lost people telling them, hey, the Bible says that you are lost in your sins. 
But thankfully, the Bible also says Jesus died for them. That's what we need to tell them. We don't soften the gospel. We don't change it to try to make it more palatable. Because in doing so, in whatever the situation, ultimately, we're just going to lose the gospel. We're going to lose the power. Whatever the context of our proclamation, we should be like the Apostle Paul and proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the core of the gospel message. It's the foundation of our hope. It's the spirit-empowered message that lost people need to hear. It's the message of gospel proclamation. True gospel proclamation demonstrates the power of God in its message. But secondly this morning, it also demonstrates the power of God in its message. Look again here. I want to read for us verse 1 again and then 3 through 5. Paul begins, he's reminding them, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Skip down to verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In describing his own preaching and teaching ministry, Paul shows us two methods for, for, for proclaiming. And I'm going to be very clever and call them the wrong method and the right method. There's two methods he shows us. The wrong one is in verse 1. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. This goes back to the cultural setting about these people who travel around and just give these wonderfully complex and confusing debates in public presentations. To impress crowds and defeat their opponents, public speakers would utilize exactly what Paul says he did not use, lofty speech and wisdom. They took the approach of the more eloquent speaker, the better. The more complex language, the better. The, the, the less clear the argument because people can't understand the words, the better. And yet Paul says, no, 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 I'm going to take a different approach. When it comes to proclaiming the gospel, Paul avoided that common rhetoric of his day. He avoided this temptation to get up there and be like everybody else. And he could have done it. Remember, Paul was sort of the Ph.D. in theology. He knew the Old Testament better than most. He could have done it. He could have used all the fancy words, all the Jeopardy words that you use to impress your friends. He could have used all those things. And he says, no, I took a different approach. He rejected the notion that the value of an argument depended upon its complexity. He rejected that notion. He says the wrong method would be to ride into town and start preaching with what he calls lofty speech or wisdom. But the right method, he points out in verses 3 and 4. He describes it this way, in weakness and demonstration of the spirit and of power. That's how he describes the method of his proclamation. Weakness and the demonstration of the spirit and power. His method was characterized by physical weakness. Very countercultural in that day and even in ours. Who wants to follow this guy up on stage who just seems weak and meek and soft-spoken? Nobody wants to follow that. We want loud and boisterous and, and um, charismatic leaders who use big fancy words. Paul says, no, I wasn't about that. He says, I was with you in weakness. He didn't rely on his stamina, the volume of his voice, or a strong charismatic presence on stage. He didn't rely on the wisdom of the day. Big, fancy, logical arguments and philosophies that make your brain hurt. He didn't rely on any of that stuff. He avoided confusing arguments and complex words. He proclaimed a simple message of Jesus Christ crucified. And he did it in weakness. Verse 4, demonstrating the power of God's spirit. 
Nobody would have, said, would have looked at Paul or heard Paul preach and, and come away thinking, wow, what a powerful speaker. Uh, man, that guy Paul, no idea what he said, but it sounded so good I'm on board. Nobody would have said that about Paul because Paul took this different strategy. And notice what the result is. Paul says, I was with you in weakness, and I was with you in a way that just showed the power of God. And look what happens when you do it that way. Verse 5. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I mentioned earlier that the message of Jesus Christ crucified is only received by God's spirit at work in us. And because of that, get this, our faith can't be in the cleverness of an argument or the wisdom of men or in the power of a sermon or in the giftedness of a preacher, but in the power of God. And Paul knew that when it comes to proclaiming the gospel, his message of weakness and clarity, as opposed to power and confusion, it ensured that anyone who believed could not put their faith in his public speaking skills, but in the power of God. Paul could have rode into town and said, look, I'm the best preacher there is. I'm like free Spurgeon. You have never heard preaching like this. And he could have got there and just tore it up and people flocked to him. But what happens in Nineveh? Faith is in the message. Faith is in the delivery. Faith is in the preacher. And Paul says, no, no, I wasn't going to be about that. I'm going to get up here and I'm going to lay out simple the truth of Jesus Christ crucified. I'm going to do it in weakness. I'm going to rely upon the power of God so that if faith comes, it's not in my sermons. Faith is in God. If Paul had preached that gospel, people would have been tempted to follow him rather than Jesus. That's why he says back in chapter 1, verse 17, he says, uh, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom. Why? Lest the cross of Christ be what? Emptied of its power. He says, again, I could have come in and had the best sermon ever, but I empty the cross of its power. By coming in and preaching with simplicity and clarity, Paul says, we are, I'm absolutely required. I'm ensuring that anybody who comes up and says, hey, I believe that message. I want to follow that Jesus. It points to the power of God and not the power of a sermon. He ensured that people could only put their faith in God. Paul's ministry of proclamation demonstrated not the power of his preaching, not the power of his teaching, but the power of God. Now, what does that look like for us? Let me give you, again, one broad application point, and then I'll get some specifics. Here it is. Do not rely on lofty speech and powerful delivery. Do not rely on lofty speech and powerful delivery. When we're talking about whatever the context is, when you get the opportunity to share the gospel, to tell people about Jesus, don't rely on lofty speech and powerful delivery. We sometimes talk about the effectiveness of the gospel, the effectiveness of proclaiming and seeing people respond in faith. Well, I want to say that the effectiveness of the gospel does not depend on the eloquence or the charisma of the presenter, but on the power of God. That's what Paul's teaching us here. The whether or not someone believes in faith is not an indication or is not dependent upon how many points you had in your sermon or whether or not they all were alliterated or whether you had the right illustration. It's not a matter of whether you shared the gospel with the um, this, using the Romans road or the four spiritual laws or evangelism explosion. And if you don't get that last quote perfectly, oh, it's all up. They were lost before. Now they're extra lost. 
No. The effectiveness of the gospel, the gospel going out and people responding in faith, does not depend upon my eloquence or yours. It doesn't depend on how uh, um, sort of charismatic and bubbly and bright a person you are. It depends upon the power of God. And get this, when we understand this, ah, burden is lifted. You know that old song, Burdens Are Lifted at Calvary? Great song. Burdens are lifted when you get this point. Because when you go out under the opposite thinking, it says, man, if I want people to believe and follow Jesus, I better make sure I get my argument right. I better make sure I have exactly the right thing to say. Better not mess it up. Better not run out of time. It all depends upon me getting that message across. When you go out with that sort of thinking, it is a burden. So I'm biblical, though. What matters is the power of God. And when you go out and you think about uh, sharing the gospel in a formal setting or informal, wherever it is, and you get this truth with you, it takes the burden off because it says, you know what? I'm not called to be effective. I'm called to be faithful. I'm called to share the gospel, proclaim the gospel, and then trust in the spirit of God to change hearts. If he does it in someone's heart today, great. If not, I'll trust in his timing. The fact that they didn't believe is not because I got my presentation wrong. It's not because I didn't say the right thing at the right time. We trust in the power of God. Let me give you an illustration of how this works on a practical setting, just for my own life. Uh, as long as I've been preaching, there, I still have anxiety every time. Every time I get up to preach or I think about a teaching situation in a classroom, whatever it is, there's this anxiety that goes through me. Because somewhere in the dark recesses of the back of my mind, there's this thought that says, you better do better than Spurgeon. And if you are not Spurgeon Jr., then you might as well stay home. Because if you don't have the right message, if you don't get it right, if you, if you get lost on your paper, if you say the wrong word, then you might as well just stay home. Because people aren't going to hear it. They're not going to learn. They're not going to grow. People aren't going to be saved. Now, I know that that's absurd. I know it is. I know that it makes it's completely ridiculous. And so I have to remind myself of this truth and say, no, it's not on me. Now, does that mean I don't prepare a sermon? Obviously not. Of course I prepare. I want to, to do as well as I can. But I'm not trusting on my eloquence or the wonderful, fantastic stories I can or cannot tell. I'm relying upon the power of God. Because And here's the flip side of that. Even if I were Spurgeon Jr., and even if I could get up here and deliver the most powerful sermons you've ever heard in your entire life, I could do that all day long. And if the power of God and the Spirit of God are not at work, it's a great speech, uh, something to put in the, in the book, sure, you know, learn from it, whatever. But there is no fruit from that. I, we are absolutely dependent upon the power of God. And so that's a great, uh, a great encouragement, I think, as we think about evangelism. We think about you've got your neighbors, you think about you've got your family members who don't know Jesus. And you're praying for that opportunity to share the gospel. And then the moment happens. There's going to be that split-second thought that says, oh, what if I get it wrong? What if I don't say the right thing? What if I do this? What do I do that? That's the moment where you remember what Paul would say. He would say, you're not going to get it right. You're not going to be the best evangelist of all time. But you don't have to be because the power of God is at work to open eyes to see and ears to hear. And if you're the sort of person that says, man, evangelism is my thing. I've got it. I've got them all memorized. I can do the spiel. I've got the zinger quote at the end that just people go, oh, that's what I need. The message is for you as well. It doesn't depend upon your eloquence or your giftedness in evangelism or in teaching a Sunday school class. It is still the power of God at work. That's what Paul's getting at here. 
because their faith is not resting in the wisdom of men, whether it's the wisdom of your teaching or the wisdom of your um, delivery, whether, you're, whether you have a lot of that wisdom or none of that wisdom. Paul says it's all about the power of God at work to save us. For all of its good qualities, the church at Corinth here was in trouble. We'll see, we'll see plenty of that in this letter. We'll see examples of the issues that they're going through, and we'll think, holy cow, that was a church? But it is. They had started united and had somehow become divided. They were divided, and these camps were forming. They had the, you know, First Baptist Church of Corinth was about to split into First Baptist Church of Peter, Paul, Apollos, and whoever else. They had lost sight of this fact, that it's the gospel that unites us, not a person. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified that unites us, not a church leader, not a pastor, not a charismatic person in the pulpit. It is the gospel that unites us. The message of Jesus Christ crucified is what united those Christian, uh, the, the Corinthian believers together in the first place. You know, Paul's essentially showing up saying, guys, I didn't come in and save you in the first place. Jesus saved you, and he united you together by faith, and now you're wanting to split up and follow all these people who themselves needed to be saved in the first place. It's just crazy. Paul says it's the gospel that unites us. It was the case in Corinth, and it's the case today at Crosspoint. It's the gospel that unites us as a church. It's not me in the pulpit. It's not Wes or Jim or anybody else. Uh, it's not who we hire as another senior pastor. It's not uh, who we bring in as a guest speaker. It's not even this anything. The reality is this book will stay here and people will come and go. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that unites us. Paul reminds the Corinthians that his ministry of proclamation was characterized by a message and a method that was radically countercultural. You know, if you're sort of like the uh, political advisor, you know, for Paul, you say, all right, Paul, I got a great, I got stuff lined up for you. Here's how we're going to do it. Big church, here we come. Paul's like, no, I'm not doing any of that stuff. He would have done exactly the opposite, the complete opposite of what the world would choose. Why? So that their faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. For us here at Crosspoint, my hope and prayer is that our ministry of proclamation would be the same. Whether it's the pulpit ministry, whether it's in our Sunday school classes and our equipping classes, whether it's in our preschool ministry during Sunday school, whether it's you at home doing family worship with your children, whether it's you in a one-on-one -on -one discipleship setting this week, whether it's you sharing the gospel with a coworker or a friend who doesn't know Jesus, whatever the context, my hope and my prayer is that we would not rely on the cleverness of our arguments or on the strength of our delivery. But instead, in our proclamation of Jesus Christ crucified, my hope is that our message and our method would rely solely upon the power of God at work. That open blind eyes to the beauty of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we are um, mindful of the fact that those of us in this room who have uh, professed faith in Christ, we did not believe because we heard the best sermon we've ever heard. We did not believe because the message just made perfect sense to us. We believe because your spirit woke us up. Your spirit made us new. And so, Father, we ask as we move forward and we process this information, we ask that you would help us to be people who are proclaiming the gospel in, in every context that we can, but doing so in a way that looks to you for strength, a way that credits your spirit at work with all the glory and all of that. 
and in a way that, that doesn't put undue burdens on ourselves. We cannot save, we cannot awaken, we cannot shape hearts. We are dependent upon you. And so, Father, we ask also that like Corinth, that we would be united around the gospel, that it wouldn't be personalities or desires or factions or groups of people wanting this or that, but that we would be united around the gospel. Preachers will come and go. Pastors will come and go. Church members will come and go. But it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that unites us. May it be said of us here at Crosspoint. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to invite the band back up to lead us in a song of response and uh, praise. I believe we're doing It Is Finished Upon That Cross, which is perfect. And so let's stand together. Let's sing and celebrate that it was 